Um, <clears throat> if you look at Luke 9, uh, the way it works is Luke assembled material that shows one that through Christ, well, Christ has all authority, and in Christ we have authority, and it, it and he he shows that by commissioning the disciples to go out, and then feeding of the five thousand. Now, the feeding of the five thousand had depending on which gospel, had a different emphasis. And all of them are correct emphases, by the way. There's nothing wrong with the way that they did it. Luke was using it to show the majesty and the glory and the authority of God. And he works towards the climatic confession of the Galilean ministry. And that's what we're going to read today, the climatic um, confession. You are the Messiah. That's the climatic confession. It took nine chapters for the disciples to get there, okay? And it continues to go until you reach the climatic revelation, which is the transfiguration. And that is where Jesus is revealed in all the glory that he had when he was with the Father. And there are a couple... Um, I, I hate to use this term, housekeeping things, until you get to Luke 9, 51, where the Bible says that he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. And so we're building to that climatic moment in Galilee. That's where we are. And then, um, if you think of um, this as like a hill, you get the climactic moment of the transfiguration. And then when he goes to Jerusalem, it's down. And matter of fact, geographically, it's that way as well. The transfiguration happened somewhere on the outskirts of Mount Hermon, the highest place in Israel. And he went into the Jordan Valley all the way down to Jericho, which was considered the lowest place in Israel because it, it was the lowest city in Israel, um, 900 feet below sea level. And then he works his way back up to Jerusalem for a second climactic moment, which is the most climactic moment of all scripture. So I wanted you to see that's the flow of where we're working today um, or in Luke chapter number nine. For months or even years, the disciples had been following Jesus, listening to his words and witnessing his miracles. And during the time uh, that, during that time, Jesus was inviting them to consider his identity. Uh, in the hope that they would trust him for their salvation. And so he brought them along slowly. Jesus asked this question when he was alone with the disciples, away from the crowds, and it's a question that everyone needs to ask. If you stand, we will read that question together. Verse number 18 now happened. As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. There you have the gospel, right? 
That's the full gospel that Jesus gives right there. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the crucified Christ. We thank you for um, all that Jesus is uh, revealed in all his glory. And I pray that today we will consider uh, the crucified Christ. And um, if we don't know him, that today would be our day of salvation. If we do, that today would be a day of, of glory given to Jesus Christ in his name. Amen. Jesus uh, began his conversation with the disciples by asking the verdict of public opinion. Jesus wasn't asking these questions for his own information, by the way, but testing the disciples to see if they would recognize his person and work. And so the, the disciples, they gave a plausible answer, um, all based upon what they heard. Now, notice the language. What's, it's, it, it doesn't say, Luke doesn't say, some say John the Baptist. What does it say? Who do people say that I am? John the Baptist. That's the majority opinion. Then they go on and say, yeah, but you know, others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets of old have arisen. But domin the dominant answer is John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, the way this sentence is constructed in the original language, it's, that's the emphasis, John the Baptist. Now, we can understand why people made this mistaken identity, realize that they didn't have TV or internet or anything like that. So many people in Galilee had never met John. Uh, they knew him only by reputation. And since what they knew about Jesus sounded so close to what they knew about John the Baptist or what they heard about John, it was natural for them to associate the two men in their minds especially since they were cousins. Now, both men had a large following, didn't they? They had a large following. Both were present at the same baptism, weren't they? And both men preached the same basic message about the kingdom of God. And so there's a very close association, so close that people who knew of John's beheading may have even thought that Jesus was the second coming of John the Baptist. Or they may have thought, well, John didn't actually lose his head. Maybe people got confused and this is John the Baptist, Jesus lost his head. It's, you've got to realize that they just, they didn't, well, I won't say what it, the snarky comment is going to make about the internet and believe in everything you read on the internet, but we'll go on, okay? An, another leading go, uh, vote getter was the prophet, prophet Elijah. Now, this comes from Malachi. If you want to turn there, turn to Malachi chapter number 4. We'll look at that prophecy very quickly and then move on. But I want you to see this because it's easy to see why people would get confused. Malachi 4, verse number 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There it is. Now, Malachi doesn't say, I'm going to send you someone like Elijah. He says, I'm going to send you Elijah. Now, on the basis of this promise, pious Jews were waiting for Elijah with eager expectation. In truth, though, the Gospels make it very clear that Malachi's prophecy was actually about John the Baptist and his ministry preparing the way for Christ. As one of the angels Announced near the beginning of Luke's gospel, turn to Luke 1.17 with me, if you will. 
Luke 1 and verse number 17. Notice what they say about John the Baptist here. The angel from heaven, no less, says that John the Baptist came how? In the spirit and power of Elijah. And so we can understand why some people may have made the connection with Jesus. Jesus was a great prophet. Uh, some of the miracles that he performed, like giving people bread, the raising of the widow's son, and healing the sick, those are the same miracles that Elijah performed. You remember that? Did I talk about that? I know I talked about that like with individuals. Did I mention in a sermon that if you go to 2 Kings chapter number 4, you say, see, not, not in the same order, but you see the same miracles that you see in Luke 8 and Luke 9. The same miracles. And so it's easy to see how people would assume that Jesus is actually the second coming Elijah. It's always interesting to hear what people think about Jesus, isn't it? I've, had, I've heard some uh, very interesting things about Jesus over the years. What other people were, um, were saying is interesting, but it's not nearly as important as what is happening in the disciples' minds and hearts. So Jesus asked the disciples for their own opinion about his true identity. Now Luke had been answering this question since the beginning of his gospel, hadn't he? Remember the, the dedication um, at the temple? When... Um, when he was dedicated and everything that was talked about him being the Messiah. Or again, at the baptism, when Jesus was baptized, what did the Father do? The Holy Spirit came down and the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, or with you I am well pleased. And so Peter, so Luke had been developing this. And then Peter, who was the spokesman for everyone, says what everyone was thinking, and that was, the Christ of God. Now, we have to constantly remind ourselves of what the word Christ means. Is the Greek word that uh, it's, um, well, let me say it differently. The Old Testament word is Messiah. Okay. Um, and translated in the Greek, it's the word Christ. That's, that's the Old Testament concept. The word Messiah is many times translated anointed one because that's what it means. It means the anointed. It's, it's not a proper name. It's a concept. However, it came to be used of a coming king. Turn with me to Psalm chapter number 2. Psalm chapter number 2. I know you weren't prepared to flip around in your Bibles, were you? Um, you were hoping to read it off the screen. So. Hopefully nobody's saying, now where is Psalms? But, uh, second King, or Second Kings. Psalm 2, in verse number 2. Look at what it says. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and his what anointed now in certain most modern translations that word is capitalized because it's referring to Jesus Christ and some of them say his anointed one 
Christ is the anointed one. There are many anointed kings, but he is the anointed one. All right, so now let's put this together and, and think about something. What were they looking for then? Kings were the ones that were anointed. And priests. But they knew from the Old Testament that the Messiah, the anointed one, was going to be a king. Okay? Now hold on to that thought. We'll get back to that. Now we might, we, we might think that Peter came to this knowledge by you know, inductive reasoning. When he said, you are the Christ, you know, he put the facts together and came to a conclusion, inductive reasoning. But this knowledge only comes as a gift from God. Did you know that? The only way that you can know that Jesus is the Messiah is it was a gift from God. As a matter of fact, Matthew makes that very clear because Matthew records Jesus' reply. Jesus looked at Peter and he said this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, the facts didn't reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven. Scripture is clear that the only way that you will know Jesus as a Messiah, as the crucified and risen Lord, which we'll see in just a moment, that's what it's talking about here, is if God Himself reveals that to you. You can present all the facts in the world. It's, it's like a blind person. Okay, every Sunday morning, I get the privilege of seeing spots from these two spotlights, right? Okay, I see spots when I look around. But, if I had no eyesight, you could line the front here with all spotlights and it wouldn't help me see anything better or see more spots because I'm blind, right? And that is true with spiritual truth. Jesus said, the Father revealed this to you. It's not human reasoning. It's not our inductive reasoning. It's not uh, ascertaining the facts. It's when the Spirit of God reveals it to the heart of man, the heart of man sees who Jesus is. When people are uh, struggling with the claims of Christ, it's not more evidence that they need. It's the gracious work of God that changes their hearts and minds. And this is, this is the true biblical doctrine of salvation. It is that God enables us to confess our faith in Christ. It is rational to believe in Jesus for salvation, but no one ever comes to Him by reason alone. Let me say that one more time. It is rational to believe that in Jesus for salvation, but no one comes to know this by reason alone. Only the Spirit of God is able to persuade us to believe that Jesus is a Christ. Now, Peter's confession of the Christ is, the, to this point, it's the climax of Luke. This is a climactic moment. Thus, it would seem like a moment to celebrate, wouldn't it? It, it, in our, if it was modern, uh, Jesus, we would look at him if, if it, Jesus were alive today and we were thinking along these terms, he'd say, hey, that's right, Peter, give me a fist bump. That's what we would expect, right? I know nobody can picture Jesus doing that, but I'm just, play along with me, okay? 
After months of training, the disciples finally understood who Jesus was. Surely it was time to rejoice that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed King, and for Jesus to praise Him for the profound understanding of Scripture. And instead, He did the exact opposite. What did He do? He looked at them and said, you know what, don't tell anybody at all. Don't say a word. He began preaching to them the gospel, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Before there could be any misunderstanding about what it meant for Him to be Messiah, look at what the Bible says. It says, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, Now what did He say? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There it is. Wait a minute, Jesus, this, isn't, this, isn't, this doesn't compute. Knowing that Jesus was a Christ was not the end. That's not enough. It's only the beginning. As soon as the disciples knew who He was, Jesus began telling them what He came to do. Now, put yourself in their shoes. It is hard to imagine the confusion and dismay that they had to feel, right? This is not the Messiah I signed up for. Jesus was telling them extraordinary words about, about suffering and death and resurrection. What on earth was He talking about? It's clear from all the Gospels that they didn't understand. He told them flat out, I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the grave for, I'm going to be, what, let me back up. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again the third day according to the Scriptures. And they did not understand. You ever, you ever felt that way to your kids? I said, go clean your room. And it's like, I, this, that does not compute, Right? We're the same way many times, aren't we? But why was he talking to them about suffering and dying? And why was he so adamant in refusing to let them tell anyone that he was a Christ? Why did he do that? It's, it's in not all the Gospels, but several of the Gospels. And matter of fact, in Luke, several times, Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this. Remember when he raised the girl from the dead, he said, don't tell anybody. Don't say a word. Why would he do that? Now, liberal scholars would say, well, that's just part of the story, the mythological storytelling and, and blah, 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 blah. But there's a very good reason for that. Scholars still debate, by the way, today. Uh, this, they call it the messianic secret. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. If you want to know a big theological term, you can go out and say, hey, my pastor talked about the Messianic secret today. And they'll think you're really smart. Um, but the reason is fairly obvious. The disciples were just beginning to understand who Jesus was, and they had no clear idea what He came to do. And so if they started telling people who Jesus was, they were bound to give people the wrong idea. Because they still didn't even understand why he came. Most people were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. 
Their aspirations and expectations were largely military. They were looking for a Christ who could deliver them from the Romans and thus enable them to live in a nation that was ruled by the law of God. So if the disciples did not wait until they had better understanding of what Jesus did, the gospel would all of a sudden get all mixed up in politics. And that, that couldn't be. So waiting was also important because when Jesus started teaching about his saving work, the disciples had no idea what he's talking about. Jesus said that he would suffer and die, which was the last thing in the world the disciples ever imagined he would say. As far as they were concerned, the Messiah was a mighty deliverer. Um, he, was, he would be a triumphant ruler, and he will be, praise God. For him to suffer and to die was incomprehensible. And that explains why they abandoned him at the cross. All the way till his crucifixion, they didn't understand. Actually, past his crucifixion, when did they understand? What chapter, Luke? There's 24 chapters in Luke. What chapter? <laughs> 24. 24 on the road to Emmaus. That's when the Bible says that Jesus opened, their hearts were opened to understand. Spiritual truth is never understood unless the Lord opens hearts to understand spiritual truth. And so 24 chapters of misunderstanding. We like to sit there and say, those disciples, if I'd only been there to tell them the truth, right? Just go back to last week's message when I talked about, you know, over and over and over, we have to learn the same thing, right? <laughs> they, they didn't understand what was happening, even though Jesus tried to explain it to them in advance. For the disciples, a rejected Christ was virtually an oxymoron. Of all things Jesus ever said to them, this was the most confusing. It was the most shocking. It was the most impossible thing for them to wrap their minds around. The Old Testament, by the way, was clear, wasn't it? Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. But our minds... And we need to be reminded of this all the time. Our minds are so clouded. Paul said we see through a glass darkly. That's talking about a mirror, by the way. That's King James. We see in a mirror darkly. We have a hard time seeing what's going on. And, and we, it behooves us. Can I use that word behoove? It behooves us. To give grace to other people. When we see them and we're just shaking our head like, what on earth are they thinking? Maybe spiritually speaking. Guess what? There are plenty of other people looking at us saying, what on earth is this person thinking? And the disciples had a hard time wrapping their mind around this. It was impossible for them to understand. But Jesus, here's the, the brilliant thing. Jesus didn't come to meet their expectations. Guess what else? He didn't come to meet our expectations. Or the expectations of anybody else. He came for one reason and one reason only. I came to do the Father's will. 
That's why he came. Which meant suffering and dying for sin. The only, the only Christ there is to confess is Christ crucified. Now, in order to do this, there was a lot going on. He, he talks about it here. Uh, he, the accusations of his enemies. The betrayal of his friends. The abuse of the soldiers. The scorn of the low criminals. He was rejected by the rulers of, of Israel. The elders and chief priests and scribes. This refers most specifically to the trial where the Jewish council, known as the Sanhedrin, denied that Jesus was the Christ. His own people rejected him for not being the very Savior that he actually was. Then Jesus was killed. And the, the pinnacle of his suffering and rejection was a crucifixion. His painful, shameful death on the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cursed tree and left to die. Slow, bloody, excruciating, God-forsaken death. That's what He did. He came down from the realms of glory. Stooped low to die for the very people He created. I love what John said today. Um, I think it was, you said Thomas Watson said that it, was, that the, it took more for the, for the um, redemption of man than it did for the creation of man. And that's absolutely true. And so Jesus knew all this in advance. And He embraced it long before it happened. The things that He suffered were not incidental or accidental, but fundamental to His person as a Christ. Thus, as soon as Peter made his confession, Jesus said, yes, I am the Christ. But if you want to make that confession, you must confess Me as the crucified Christ. Now, in the New Testament times, the Roman times, crucifixion, it was, it was, it was embarrassing. It was shameful, and Christianity was was um, associated with an object of shame. And so, all the early church, there was shame associated with knowing Jesus. I'm talking about cultural. Shame. They weren't ashamed of knowing Jesus. There was a cultural stigma and shame in crucifixion. Even this is not all. Jesus said one more thing. This is the best part. What else did he say after he said he's going to die? He's going to raise, be raised from the dead on the third day. Praise God that was part of the plan, right? There, there, would, there would be triumph. In the end, a crown to follow the cross. The disciples, think about some of the unbelievable moments that they had. They, 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 everyone got bigger when he started performing miracles. The water to wine, first miracle. I'm sure they thought, man, this is unbelievable. Who is this guy? Then you have the, the raising of people from the dead. And that was only the three, Peter, James, and John, saw witnessed that one. But all of them witnessed the feeding of 5,000. Like, you know, can you imagine them on Instagram? Man, today this was unbelievable. You know, snapshot, this is what happened today type thing. And, and then, then you have different kinds of unbelievable. Now all of a sudden he's saying, well, I'm going to die. That doesn't make any sense. And then they, three of them see the, the, um, 
the Lord in all His glory. And then you have the crucifixion. That was unbelievable. So unbelievable they all ran. They still didn't understand. And when He was raised from the dead, they still didn't understand and they still didn't believe He had to eat a piece of fish to prove to them that He wasn't a ghost. And and so this is what it meant. They, They had to be thinking this was blowing their minds. They had no idea what was going on. And it will take the whole rest of the Gospel for the events to unfold. Once you get to Luke 9.51, the rest of the events is maybe maybe a, a couple months at the most. From Luke 9.52 until Luke 24, it's only a few months. I mean, this could have been like in the winter, like January, February, he was crucified in April, somewhere along there. I don't think it, in my mind, I don't think it was January. And here's why Mount Hermon's pretty high and there's a lot of snow up there. And I've been to one of the, and you, I don't know if we took you, we didn't go there this year because it was closed because of snow actually. But you go to one of the possible spots of the Transfiguration in January, February, snow. We weren't able to go this year because there was snow up there, a snowstorm. And so it was sometime later most likely. So these events happened very quickly, but it took the whole rest of the Gospel of Luke for these events to unfold. Luke has spent nine chapters introducing us to the person of Christ. He's given us a clear answer to his first great question. Who is Jesus? The answer is that He is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, anointed to be our Savior. And from here on out now, he will focus on the work. So we have we learned who the person of Jesus is. Now we're going to see the work of Jesus. The rest of Luke. What did he come to do? The answer the gospel gives us is that he came to suffer and to die for our sins and to rise again with the free gift of eternal life for everyone who confesses him as a crucified and risen Christ. Now, what's your confession? Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe He came to do? You know, there are a lot of people who claim Christ, but they believe that Christ came to make their life better. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Christ came to save me so that my marriage gets better. Christ came to save me so I get a better job. Christ came to save me so I make some new connections. Christ came to save me so I'd actually be happy. What do you believe Jesus came to do? The Gospel of Luke testifies that Jesus is the Christ of God, the Messiah of God who suffered and died on the cross for sinners, who was raised from the dead to give eternal life. And even the disciples did not understand this all the first time Jesus explained it to them. They needed to hear the Gospel 
many times before it began to make sense to them. But eventually they believed it and were saved. True for me too. I heard the gospel over and over and over and over. I had the gospel memorized. I had the verses memorized, the Romans Road and all that. But I still had to hear it over and over and over before I began to understand it. Is the gospel clear to you? If it is, then you can say on the basis of what you read in the Bible and by the work of God's Spirit in your mind and heart that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that your confession? Wonderful confession, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. Your soul is alive with the full realization that Jesus died for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Isn't that a glorious truth to rejoice in? I was reading, I don't even know where I was reading this week, one of my, um, in the morning when I got up to read the Bible, and the, the thought struck me about how Christ left all the riches and glory and comfort and everything of heaven, and he became poor, poverty stricken. He had nothing, zero. His whole life here on earth. But he went back to heaven in glory. Can you imagine that? We would have a hard time, probably, I mean some of you might not, but you go to some of the places like India. I know we have Indian restaurants, but that's not exactly what people in India eat all the time. Some of the places you go, do you know how they ritually cleanse pots and bowls? With dung. In India, they clean it with dung and then they pour your food in. Would you eat that? <laughs> Would you give the gospel to people like that? I mean, that's, I can't, I'm trying to think of a comparison to what Jesus did. He didn't do anything like that. But for him to come down to earth in the form of a man, that's humiliating, degradating to him. And he did it for us. He did it for the glory of Christ. Maybe all that's clear to you. But then again, maybe it's not clear. Maybe you're still trying to understand it. The way to understand the gospel is by hearing the same message that Jesus first preached to his disciples and by asking God for faith to believe in the crucified and risen Christ. Have you done that? Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amazing little passage here. So much that could have been said, but I decided to keep it simple today. I pray, Lord, that we will meditate on the glory of Christ. For anyone who has not trusted Christ, pray that today will be their day of salvation. But Lord, more than anything, I want us to leave here just reveling and in awe of the fact that our very Creator suffered and died in our place. Yes, He did it so that we might have salvation, but He also did it for His own glory, for the praise of His glory, the Bible tells us. And I pray that we will praise the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.